occasionally a new Christian or maybe a visitor will come up after me in the, out in the hallway and they'll say, oh, Father Brogy, I have a question for you. And I say, look, I, I'm not Father Brogy. Now you can call me Pastor Brogy if you want, or you can call me Brother Brogy, but I'm not Father Brogy. Look, if you call me Father, you look up to me. If you call me Brother, you look to me. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're looking at the church at Pergamum, the third of seven churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. We've noted that each of these messages is addressed by Jesus to the so-called angel of the church, and likely this was the pastor of each of these churches. Some of these messages commend the churches and then are followed up by a rebuke, and such is the case in Pergamum. As we pick up, we see that Jesus commended the church there for having been faithful to the gospel message, even singling out one individual named Antipas. As we pick up in our message entitled, Satan's Throne, Dr. Brogy gives a little insight into this man, Antipas. There was a man in the church, his name was Antipas. And he didn't care what people thought about him. He wasn't going to budge. And so we read here, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Antipas basically said, the faith of the Lord Jesus is my faith. God said it, I believe it, I'm not moving an inch. Many think that he was one of the pastors there in the church. External biblical sources say that, and external biblical sources say that he died and that he was baked and broiled in a large brazen bowl. They said, we're going to kill you. In essence, he said, if you want to kill me, you're going to kill me, but I'm going to be faithful to the faith of Jesus. Church history records just a few years later that there were two stonecutters in the city of Pergamum who refused Diocletian's order to carve out an image of Asclepolos, this snake god. They said, we will not do it. And so they killed those two men because they refused to make the city's mascot. This was Satan's throne. And those two men would rather be loyal to Jesus than to be nice. And really, when you're loyal to Jesus, you're not mean and hateful as some people say I am. You're nice. Because when you tell people the truth, that's the most gracious thing that you can do. But when you begin to twist doctrines, when you begin to uh, reject the clear moral standards of God, then you're the worst, meanest, ugliest person you could be Because when you lower God's standard, which is God's schoolmaster tutor to point you to Jesus, there's, look, if homosexuality is not wrong, I'm okay. If adultery is not wrong, I'm okay. If drunkenness is not wrong, okay. Because there's no standard that convicts me and shows me that I am wrong. And that's an ugly thing to do. So here is this brother, Antipas. I look forward to meeting him in heaven. He was my witness. The faithful witness, Jesus says. By the way, that's the same phrase that's used of Jesus in the first chapter. 
He's the faithful witness. And the word witness is the Greek word martyr. We get our word martyr. You could translate it either way. He's the faithful witness. And in his case, he was also the faithful martyr. So here are some people faithful to the Lord's person, faithful to his precepts, and Jesus commends them for it. Secondly, Christ's word of correction for the church at Pergamum. Not only do they have a word of commendation, they have a word of correction. Let me read verses 14 to 16 so you get the flow and then we'll step through it. But I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, even though this was a wonderful church, they needed some correction because they had embraced the teachings of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember, teaching will influence you. As a man believes, so he will behave. And so the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, Titus, repeatedly say that pastors are to teach sound doctrine. The word sound is a medical term from the first century. Healthy doctrine. Because healthy doctrine creates healthy churches and healthy people and healthy families. And so we don't want to teach something that is wrong, that is unhealthy. And you don't want to teach your children or grandchildren. Some of you have grandchildren and you've come and told me and they're living in sin and you're afraid to tell them the truth because they might get mad at you. Some of your grandkids are living that way. Speak the truth in love. You say, look, I love you and you can do absolutely nothing to ever make me stop loving you. But God's word is clear. And so what exactly was Balaam all about? Let's talk about it. First, on your outline, they were to repent over the teaching of Balaam. So who is this guy, Balaam? He says, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Now, Balaam was a Gentile. We know that from Scripture. He called himself a prophet of God. God called him a soothsayer. Uh, You might want to go home, just put out in the margin, Numbers 22 through 25, and also Numbers 31. If you read 22 to 25 and you don't read 31, where God gives us divine commentary, you'll miss a lot. Now, we can't deal with those chapters in full this morning, but let me give you kind of a synopsis of them. The children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. The 40 years of wandering was basically over. And the king of Moab, a guy named Balak recognized that these Israelis were going to come into what they called the promised land. And so he wanted this guy, this prophet, so to speak, Balaam, to curse them. So he sent a pulpit committee to to Balaam the prophet. He says, Balaam, I'll pay you good money. I just want you to do one thing. Curse the children of Israel. Now remember, Satan has power. And this man must have somehow displayed power in the past that this king would be willing to pay him money for his services. So Balaam inquired of the God of Israel, which was typical for a pagan. Whatever God you're dealing with, you inquire of that God. And many times you'd get a response back from other gods because behind false gods, the Bible teaches our demons. But on this occasion, the one true God, the God of Israel, responded to Balaam. We read in Numbers twenty-two, twelve, and God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You shall not curse the people, 
for they are blessed. So from the outset, God told Balaam not to help Balak. So at first, Balaam obeyed, and he sends back messengers to the pulpit committee. He says, no, nah, the God of Israel says, I, I can't curse you. I'm sorry. So they send back a new committee of more distinguished people. The beautiful people come. More money. They said, look, we just want you to curse it. He said, hmm, let me pray about this. So he prays about it. You know, sometimes when you resist God long enough, God will say, go ahead and do it. He'll, he'll let you have your way because he won't go against your free will. So he lets him have his way. But in the process, his donkey is stopped on three occasions. Remember, the donkey is scared to death. And he is stopped by the angel of the Lord. It's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. Before he ever took on human flesh in Bethlehem, there's some select times in the Old Testament he shows up, not as an angel, but the angel of Yahweh. He's called God himself. And so Balaam says, what, what, what are you doing? He says, I'm stopping. Why are you hitting me? I've been a good donkey my whole life, and I've served you my whole life. Why are you hurting me? And Balaam said, if I had a sword, I'd put it through you right now. And the amazing thing to me is not that God can make a donkey talk. Look, if God can make a parrot talk, he can make your dog talk or anything else he wants to talk. Amazing thing to me is that, that Balaam is talking back to the donkey. But the analogy is clear. Balaam, you're the donkey. You should try to do a good job like your donkey did. And just like I put words in the mouth of the donkey, I'm going to put words in your mouth. So the king gets him. He stands on this ridge where he overlooks the children of Israel. And he goes to curse the children of Israel. And the Spirit of God comes on this unbeliever and he speaks truth through him. And he can't curse the, king of Israel, the children of Israel. And the king says, what are you doing? I paid you good money. He says, I can't do it. Yahweh won't let me do it, but I've got a prize idea by which you can still pay me. I can get the God of Israel to curse the children of Israel. You get some of those pretty young women from Moab, you send them down there in the camp, and they can put on all their seductivity and the children of Israel will fornicate with those women. And God will curse them. And that's exactly what the king did. And 24,000 Jewish men died that day. And in Numbers 31, when Moses at the end of his life recounts what happened, he says, behold these, referring to the women of Moab, behold these caused the sons of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. And Jesus takes this Old Testament illustration and says here in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there some who hold the teaching, the counsel of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. And by the way, if you've read Numbers 31, God ends up killing this false prophet with a sword. I find that interesting, because here's Jesus with a two-edged sword protruding from his mouth, and he ultimately judges this man by way of type and illustration with a sword. And so what is the counsel of Balaam? What is the teaching of Balaam? It's mixing together the things of God with the things of the world. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. 
It's corruption that can come into your life or into a church or into a nation when you mix truth with error. So our government still says murder is wrong, but homosexuality is right. And we mix the two. And churches are doing the same thing. They mix the teachings of the world with the teachings of God. And Peter tells us that we're not to do that, that we are to repent, that judgment is to begin first with the household of faith. And I want to tell you, there are some great churches that were once in our community. And I used to read the history of some of these churches that sent missionaries and had revivals. And today they are apostate and a million miles away from God because they are mixing the teachings of the world with the teachings of the word. And when you do that, God will curse a church. God will take his hand off of a church. God says friendship with the world, that is with its principles, not with the people. We are to care for their souls like someone cared for yours, and so you're here today. Friendship with the world is hostility towards God. And when a church ignores sin, they are mixing worldliness, with the word. This week it about broke my heart. I went and saw a man who used to be a member of this church and I just found out, I wish I had known two years ago, that he divorced his wife so that he could live with his daughter's teacher. And I went to him, I said, I'm not your pastor anymore so I can't exercise church discipline on you but I want you to go home and read 1 Corinthians 5. Because God's word is clear. And I'm going to commit you to the Lord for the destruction of your flesh. It's not too late yet. You could still go back and take your wife who I find out would take him back in a heartbeat. And you could fix it. But you see, people don't exercise church. People ask, what's church discipline sometimes? I see you do that. I've never heard that. I've been here for 27 years, and we've done it over 50 times. Most of the time, you never hear about it. I dealt with another man this week, first level, and I think it's over. Thank God. Sometimes it stops at the first or second level. Or sometimes, like a few months ago at a Wednesday night service, it came to the whole church. That's when we do in-house discipline. And sometimes a person is put out of the church because they refuse to repent. And when they refuse to repent, 1 Corinthians 5 teaches you are removed from the protective umbrella of the church. And those elders are then saying, God, we are giving this person over, if necessary, to the devil for the destruction of his flesh. Why? So that he might repent. You say that's harsh. That's the most loving thing you can do. When a church mixes the teaching of the world with the Word, God comes with His sword on that church. Those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. If you're thinking about meeting up with some lady tomorrow, man, don't do it. Young lady, if you're thinking of meeting some man who's married for lunch tomorrow, don't do it. If you truly know Jesus, 
You will meet God in discipline. And so here's the devil. He thinks, you know, if I can't curse these people, then I'll corrupt these people. And so what Satan could not do from without, he did with great success from within. And so here's Jesus. He corrects the church first over their teaching of Balaam, now over the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. We're almost done. Stay with me. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Jesus warns the teaching of the Nicolaitans is not to be something allowed in the church. So what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans? This is a composite, untranslated word, kind of like baptizo. Nikao, the, you know, the god of Nike or victory or power. There's the word Nikao that means to rule or to conquer. And there's the word laos, which means people. And so the sin of the Nicolaitans was when you have people in the church, leaders in the church, who are people rulers where there was a clergy, ecclesiastical versus laity distinction, an artificial distinction, where you have, you know, a plain member, and then you have a minister, so to speak. As the decades passed, by about 95 AD, when this book is written, that had already begun to form, where you had some people who were in an unhealthy way ruling over the people, who were not so much shepherds as they were demagogues. Now understand, there's this balance in Scripture, and we're not to violate the balance. On the one hand, you have these people who today ignore biblical leadership, and yet 1 Timothy 5.17 speaks of elders who rule. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders. For they give watch over your soul. And so the church is not a democracy. There are leaders that God puts in it. But those leaders are not to be demagogues. They are to be shepherds. They were to care for the people. Occasionally, a new Christian or maybe a visitor will come up after me in the, out in the hallway. And they'll say, oh, Father Brogy, I have a question for you. And I say, look, I'm not Father Brogy. Now, you can call me Pastor Brogy if you want. Or you can call me Brother Brogy, but I'm not Father Brogy. Look, if you call me Father, you look up to me. If you call me Brother, you look to me. I'm your brother. Do not, Jesus said, call anyone on earth your father. He's not talking about a child calling his daddy, papa, abba. He's using it in an ecclesiastical way. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father. He who is in heaven, do not be called leaders, for one who is your leader, that is Christ. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. In some churches, the history of it is they call everybody brother. Hey, brother so-and-so, brother this, brother that. It actually comes back historically to them dealing with the sin of the Nicolaitans, not wanting to be guilty of it. You say, Pastor Carl, that's wonderful. You're coming down to my level. No, I'm bringing you up to my level because there's not one minister in this church. Every minister is sitting out here in these seats. We are all believer priests. That's one of the great doctrines of the Protestant Reformation. And so unlike the Ephesian church who hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, the church at Pergamum was holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans in an unhealthy way where there was this clergy-laity distinction. And so since the church is the body of Christ, Satan tried to first corrupt the body. And since Jesus is the head of the church, he then tried to replace the head. And so the church... And Pergamum was corrupted by the teaching of Balaam, and the church in Pergamum was replaced 
by Jesus, by the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And so Jesus, caring for these people, says, verse 16, therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent, it's an heiress imperative. Stop it right now. Change right now. Change your mind right now. See, there's a lot of people who come to church on Sunday who feel guilty over what they did Saturday night, but on Monday they're planning to do the same thing all over again. That's not repentance. Or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. You see those two pronouns? Maybe you should underline them. They're verse 16, the word you and the word them. Those are two important pronouns that refer to this group called the church at Pergamum. The first you is not plural, but in Greek it is singular. It refers back to the angel in verse 1, to the senior pastor. Understand, there was no church buildings. And so in a church like Pergamum, they met in houses in different places. Some churches had houses across the city, and you had pastors in each house, and, and, and then you have a senior pastor where maybe on occasion, as Josephus records, they would all come together. But generally, they met in different homes. And so here was a senior pastor who needed to do what was right. He needed to stop what was happening in terms of this moral compromise and in terms of this false ecclesiastical laity distinction. And the them referring to these who had embraced the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans needed to stop as well. Otherwise, Jesus was going to come and he was going to judge this church. This is why, as a pastor, I take very seriously church discipline. Because if I don't, God's going to judge me. If I know that there's someone who is living in open sin, look, we're all sinners, but not all sin deserves church discipline. But there are some kinds of sin that the New Testament isolates that require and invite the discipline of the local pastors. And if we don't do that, if we just turn the other way, God will take his blessing off of that church. Now, just quickly in closing, Christ's word of comfort for this church, it comes on two levels. First, he promises the overcomer, the overcomer in verse 17 is infinite resources. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We've already noted that this is not just written to one church, but the church is meaning all seven, plus like the church at Rome or Corinth or Ephesus that have other letters written to them, it applies to us as well. So this applies to every church. And he says, to him who overcomes, I will give him the hidden manner. Overcomers, who are they? This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And our faith is built on the word of God. And if you choose by faith to do what is right on the basis of the word of God, there's a promise you will eat of the hidden manna. What is the hidden manna? Well, there was a jar of manna that no one had ever tasted. And it was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant that no one could open. It was in the Holy of Holies. Hidden manna. He promises manna, the psalmist says, was angel food. They had never had this. And Jesus is promising these believers, because remember, in John chapter 6, he says the manna in the Old Testament was me. I represented the manna. 
It was round. That spoke of his eternality. It was white. It spoke of his purity. It was, uh, uh, they had to pick it up off the ground that pictured uh, his resurrection and so forth. There's beautiful typology all the way through the manna. And he is saying to this church that if you will be an overcomer, if you will choose to do what is right, I'm going to give you the life-giving power and sustenance that manna gave the children of Israel. But then he also promises his infinite reception, his infinite reception. And I will give him a stone, a white stone, and a new name written on it, the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. Back in Bible days when people would become very, very close friends, they would enter into a covenant relationship with another person. And the way you express that friendship is you took a stone, smooth stone, and you cut it in half, and you wrote your name on one half and the person's name on the other half, and you exchanged it. One Marine told me this was the basis for uh, coin exchanges. I've never been able to prove that, but uh, it's interesting. But you are basically saying, I've covenanted with you. You and I are friends. I will see you through thick and thin. You didn't do that with anyone. And on it, Jesus said, I will give you this stone and there'll be a new name. And someday when you get to heaven, you'll have a new name in glory. God renamed a lot of people. Cephas became Peter. Abraham became Abraham. Sarai became Sarah. Saul became Paul. It's a name of intimacy that no one else will know as we will see. But Jesus, you know, I, I, I have some names for my wife that no one else knows but me and her. Now, don't ask me after the service. <laughs> Jesus is saying to the overcomer, to the one who chooses to be in the center of his will, that there will be an intimacy. He promises the same thing in John 14, 21, that when you obey him, he reveals himself to you. And I want to tell you, there is nothing more fulfilling in this life than to walk with the living God. To know Him, for Him to reveal Himself to you. And the cheap substitutes that the devil will try to convince you as being better will rob you of real life. Now, if you've never met Him, I'd like to introduce you to Him. And the only way I can introduce Him to you is through a second birth. You must be born again. And just like the children of Israel believed what God said and they looked at the brazen snake on the pole and they were instantly healed, you will instantly be saved if you will admit there's a problem that you're a sinner, but judgment was dealt with on the cross. And if you will believe on Jesus, he'll save you today. Holy Father, thank you for the chance to meet here today. Please be with us. I pray today for someone who has never met you, who is unsure of heaven. If they will look and live, they can be saved today. For you promise whoever will call in Jesus' name will be saved. Help them to believe what you said. Help them to believe that they can never earn heaven, that we are all unworthy sinners. And help them in simple faith to believe. Help someone else today, Father, who knows you, who maybe is on the edge or maybe in the midst of rebellion. Help us to hear what you've said, to repent, to make things right. Help us to ignore the cheap substitutes of the evil one and embrace your bounty. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen again to today's message from Revelation chapter 2, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV6. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayerful and financial support of listeners such as yourself. If you can help sustain this ministry through a one-time gift or by becoming a regular supporter, please call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button at our website, searchthescriptures.org. Tomorrow we begin a look at the church at Thyatira in a message entitled, Jesus or Jezebel. Join us then as we search the scriptures.